0: Forge family, last week when we gathered, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 5. In that text, Paul set out a further set of instructions to Timothy about elders in the churches of Ephesus. If they led well and labored to be good teachers and counselors from the word of God, they were to be given the double honor. That was financial support and honor for their positions. Then Paul turned to how to rightly hold elders accountable. If a charge was brought against such a leader, there needed to be two to three witnesses to back the charges with facts. Then if the charges were indeed factual, the elder was given the opportunity to repent. Paul gave an abbreviated version of Matthew 18, in which Jesus laid out the pattern of church discipline for us all. The goal was to, quote, win back your brother, unquote. Not blacken his name and cast him adrift in the street. If the charged elder would not repent, he was to be rebuked publicly and removed from leadership. Now, Paul continued in his instructions by Holy Spirit. Timothy was to be slow, slow, In laying on hands for any who had walked apart from the Lord, but had repented and returned to the churches. The laying on of hands on a repentant sinner, done by the elders, was to receive them back into fellowship. Paul wanted to be sure that their repentance was real, tested, and given time if Timothy was too quick to lay on hands he and the churches might become liable for future sins by a not so repentant sinner who was restored too quickly last week i did not use the account of the fall of a healing evangelist some 13 years ago he was held accountable for a year after blowing up his marriage and his ministry and and at the end of the year he was then released to return to ministry. Subsequently, more than 60 women have come forward to charge him with utterly inappropriate, wicked advances. Hands laid on too soon. So let's pray. Holy One, we are often jolted by the sins of others when in reality we should be sobered by our own. Before you, Lord, sin is sin with little or no difference of magnitude. They all separate us from you. That being so, we bow now and ask you to wash us in the word and awaken our hearts so that we can quickly discern our own sin and repent. Thank you that no one ultimately answers to us but us. We ourselves as we judge ourselves by the word of God and the conviction of Holy Spirit. Lead us to purity, Lord. Lead us to holiness, as you promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we begin chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Paul begins with the issue of slaves and masters in the churches. At the time of his writing, one-third of the Roman Empire... Some 60 million men and women and children were slaves. Those became slaves as a result of losing a war, or being kidnapped and sold into slavery, or being born into slavery, or having fallen into debt, and then they had to forfeit their free status to become slaves. Lastly, some impoverished individuals determined that they would live a better life with food, shelter, and privileges if they sold themselves into slavery. Those that owned slaves had the right of life and death over them. In the Roman Empire, and on its fringes, slavery was to be found everywhere. Three times before the the lifetime of Paul, there had been a slave revolt, which had been brutally put down each time. Slavery was a fact of life in the empire and Paul does not set out to tip the scales of the 60 million toward freedom. To have done so would have created chaos in the empire and a savage response against the church. Instead, he teaches how the church is to receive both slave and master. Verse 1 says, Let all who are under the yoke regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. The, quote, under the yoke, unquote, reference likened slaves to animals, oxen particularly. That was galling. That was humiliating. In the latter case, oxen were fed, sheltered, and worked hard. So, too, were slaves by most masters. If slaves were sent to the galleys, the mines, or the brothels, they were worked to death. Those were a small fraction of of the slaves. But Paul is urging all slaves who were believers in Christ to respond to their masters with honor. In other words, if they were Christians, they were to be better workers with better attitudes and behaviors than those slaves that did not know Jesus. Their honor of their masters was to be so evident that masters would begin to notice because he had better workers. The result of that exhortation was that slaves' behaviors and labors were to lift up the name of Jesus, not drag it down into the muck. Paul had written to the Ephesians previously, knowing that the gospel would destroy the essence of slavery one relationship at a time follow along in Ephesians 6 verses 5 to 9 this is what Paul said previously to the Ephesian churches slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ not by way of eye service or man pleasers but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So he said it twice, okay? You answer tw- you know, in there twice. You're actually slaves of Christ. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever goodwill or good things uh, each one does, this will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same thing to them. Give them and give up threatening knowing that both their masters and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Chapter 6, verse 2, back in 1 Timothy, says, And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach, These principles. Now, some of the born-again slaves had masters who were also Christians. Paul rightly knew that some Christian slaves would expect to be treated differently, would feel entitled to better quarters, better food, and cushy job assignments from their Christian masters. And Paul goes out of his way to let it be known that spiritual equality does not result in civil equality. Further, some of the slaves may have become overseers and pastors in the churches in which the masters were present. The word of the Lord to both slave and master was, serve me first. For the slave, that would inspire them to serve their master at a higher level. For the master, that would inspire him to oversee the slave with firm grace and godly expectations. The attitude and actions of both slave and master is to be changed by the blood of Jesus. Uh, looking hard at the text prompts me to suggest that the last sentence of verse 2 belongs as the opening sentence of verse 3. Now here, I just, I'm going to go ahead and add that sentence to, to verse 3. It says, Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, Those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. For he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Paul has already experienced conflict between Judaizers and Greek philosophers and false teachers. The latter was in when he was in Corinth. So each category are are folks who bend the scriptures or teach of mysticism as being the perfect religion for everybody. Now, Paul urges Timothy to listen carefully to all doctrinal presentations and if they are out of sync with the scriptures and in disagreement with the words of Jesus and veering away from the doctrine of godliness, Timothy was to step in strong. Such a false teacher is described as puffed up, conceited, being filled with his own importance and understanding. Paul says that sums up to a big fat zero. The Williams translation of the New Testament calls such a false teacher a conceited ignoramus. Bet you never thought that you'd see that in scripture, okay? (laughs) He is proudly expounding about what he knows not. Such false teachers are consumed with controversy, word splitting, resulting in a kerfuffle either in the street, in the sanctuary, or in the seminary that produces envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. That abrasion may be between those who hold fast to godliness and sound doctrine and those who have become deluded and trapped in a satanic lie that has resulted in their depraved mind and utter lack of truth. Remember the qualifications Paul laid out to be an overseer or a deacon in chapter 3? It is remarkable how many of those qualifications were lacking, absent, from among the false teachers. Donald Guthrie wrote, When reason is morally blinded, all correctives to unworthy behavior are banished, and the mind becomes destitute of the truth. These false teachers view ministry as a career as a means of supporting themselves financially as an elevated platform position as a means to tenure so that they can teach falsehood now here, here the term heterodoxy that means a doctrine of another kind okay which could be something like salvation by another means righteousness being attained by works etc heterodoxy has been present as a counterfeit Doctrine that has paralleled the church for two millennia. Today, the doctrines of the progressive church and the teachings of those who deconstruct scripture would qualify as heterodox. Now, Paul turns to the emphasis of materialism among the false teachers and the dangers of greed. Verses 6 to 10 continue. But godliness actually is a means to great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with those, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Now, Paul puts a bond in the text between godliness and contentment. Contentment, in in Greek, is the word autarchia. And it is a word that Paul reached into the the Koine language and, and grasped it and pulled it over across into the church and baptized it because... The essence of that word is it is an attitude independent of externals and dependent on God. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 13, Paul wrote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is Christ's sufficiency. Adding contentment to godliness will make you grateful for God's provisions in this life. Verse 7 is a quote from other ancient writers. It's not Pauline, Paul did not write this, but it was so common, everybody sort of repeated it, okay? They knew that they came naked into this world and naked they would return to the earth in death. A Spanish quote is a bit more in your face. Quote, shrouds have no pockets, unquote. We are to be content with life and life after death. Verse 8 speaks of contentment when we have food and covering. That's essentially food and clothing, food and shelter. That, those are both basic stuff. And Paul says that those, with those, we will be content. Then Paul unmasks the greed of the false teachers and their followers. Those who want to get rich in a hurry. Uh, that's really the essence of the, of the text here. Okay, and, uh, and the essence of the comment. He says, they will fall into temptation, and the snare of many foolish desires that plunge men into ruin and devastation. Now, we've all heard accounts of those in Silicon Valley who became immensely wealthy when their stock options vested. Some of them, not many, but some, spent vast sums of money on Lamborghinis or Ferraris only to crash them and die. That ruin was swift. Other ruin comes along more slowly and deceitfully. Paul's quote regarding money being the root of all evil is one of the most often misquotes of Scripture. What he wrote was that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now, Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. It has to be one or the other. Now, some brothers and sisters, Paul said, in their desire, their longing for financial gain had wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a hurt. Clearly, not all kinds of evil come from the love of money. This is just one of a list that has the potential to disqualify leadership, tear marriages apart, wound your life, etc. Forge family, many begin their walk of faith well. It's how you finish that counts. So as Paul to Timothy, here I get a chance to ask you, are, are you pursuing godliness with contentment? Are you serving one master? Is Jesus the only one you lean on to be strengthened? If your answer is yes, to all three, that, okay, be settled. Be settled in your walk with him. Some of you have had encounters with family, friends, and leaders, etc., in which they had become morally blinded. When we read of politicians, we can often run into this. We often run into the sense of uh, the same sort of blockages when the subject is right to life. Some of those men and women have chosen darkness. So we pray for them, ask the Lord to invade their space, convict them of sin, and call out to them to come into the arms of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, you are enough. We gratefully bow before you, giving thanks for your provision and protection. Guard our hearts, Lord, from the pitfalls of power and wealth. Move us to invest what you give us, into the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forks family, I love you. We'll talk to you soon. God bless.